que hay por las bandas donde Bélgica puede mostrarse más fácil. Buena la posición, correcta la posición, vamos a ver. Y el primer gol del Mundial España 82 en este clamoroso fallo de la defensa ha sido marcado por Van der Berg. Bélgica 1, Argentina 0, minuto 17.30. España 82, one day at a time. I'm Rob Murphy, and this is the first in a new series from your favorite football history podcasters, telling the story of the game, one tournament at a time, one day at a time. For those of you who are new to this concept, here's what you need to know. This is our third tournament deep dive, following on from Italia 90, one day at a time, and Euro 92, one day at a time. The concept is simple. Five sports journalists, with a whole host of guests along the way, undertake the challenge of re-watching an entire tournament, in this case, the 19. 82 World Cup. And all of this can only happen because the following four people are daft enough to go on such a mission. Television producer Kieran O'Hara, Sunday Times sports journalist Mick Foley, sportsman and sports broadcaster Billy Joe Padden, and sports writer Colin Sheridan. Let's start with Kieran. Welcome back for another series. Hola Rob. Hola indeed. Let's keep it in order. Mick, how are you getting on? Actually, quite well. Because like normally... As you mentioned, the other two that we did, normally I come into this this whole thing full of loathing, like about 30% loathing for the concept, and 70% self-loathing for letting myself get into it. And, you know, do I really not want to spend time with my family this much? You know, where's my life at? But this time, I actually, from watching the game and from looking back at the old, the old pop culture from the time, I think this is going to be class. I'm actually looking forward to this. You might have finally snared me with something I enjoy doing, Rob. Well, yeah, I, I've looked through. I think Peru, Cameroon coming up on day three might be a challenge. But let's see. <laughs> Billy Joe Patton, you called it. You said, I want to do, I want to look back at the 1982 World Cup. When yeah, are we going to well do done, that? Well done, Billy Joe. Yeah, uh, here thanks. he goes. It's all on um, you. Know. So he's to blame. You can blame me after mm. a month of this, whether you, you decide whether it was worth it or not. Uh, again, I have to frame this in that my childhood consisted of a KTEL VHS of all the goals of the 82, 86 and 1990 World Cup. So it's like deja vu all over again for me every time I see one of these goals because they, they come out, oh yeah that's that's how it was uh, so it's 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 really it's just it's just my nostalgia welcome to my nostalgic event lads you're all very welcome did, given hey. that was KTL did it come with a free Richard Claderman album <laughs> it, 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 it used to come with like you know uh, a couple of Cliff Richard tunes not sang by Cliff Richard. So somebody else, I don't know. <laughs> Actually, those K-Tel records, right? You know the way vinyl has to be a certain, like, you know, the better vinyl is a certain weight, like. Those K-Tel <laughs> ones, you, 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 if you only looked at it, it would crack and smash and smash. Like, they were so light. No, I can tell you, and I can tell you this from experience as a six-year-old at the time, didn't make good frisbees. I worked so hard at trying to introduce the concept of this show, and I've just realized there's no point. I mean, this show has any number of tangents. <laughs> Why was I even trying to concisely? Uh, let's just introduce uh, guest number four, as I count. Colin Jordan, how are you? Que pasa, hermanos? Um, I think I'm the... Uh, <laughs> look at that, look at that. Look. I, 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 I mean, I will, to be honest, Mick, I had so much time to tee it up after your um, uh, four different uh, soliloquies into um, <laughs> segues. 
Um, <clears throat> anyway, no, delighted to be on board, Rob. Unlike the rest of the guys, even Billy, this is not so much nostalgia because it's all fresh to me. I def- definitely had a, I definitely had a fair bit of it from my brothers about uh, how great this tournament was, but uh, I didn't, I haven't seen too much of it, or I don't think I have. So I'm, I'm actually probably the one who. Uh, who's going to get the most out of this, I'm telling you now. So I, I can't wait to sit back and listen to you boys and chime in when um, you know when I want something clarified. But uh, <laughs> no, I'm ready. I'm Point ready. of order, Your Honor. <laughs> All I, I can say is thank God for books, because I, I this is my first time seeing this tournament. Yeah. Yeah, same as. Yeah. Same here. Few clips. I'm trying to think of what clips I can even remember from the 82 World Cup. I mean, there's the Italy-Brazil game, just Tardelli. There is, well, I, I definitely have seen clips of Kuwait trying to pull the team off the pitch, um, that kind of stuff. Oh, Schumacher, of course. Oh, my God. Any other highlights? What are the key highlights? There's like a list of them. Well, Brian Robson's goal, I guess. That's the goal in the history of the World Cup. Jerry Armstrong. Um, Jerry Armstrong. Like, I suppose, sweatbands and wristbands and stuff like that. They're all the rage. Actually, here's a question, right? Kieran, you're the TV techie guy, right? No, explain this to me, right? Do you know <laughs> that the way can be disproved in the next next reply? <laughs> well, let's just see what happens, right? Do you know the way, lads, when you watch the 82 World Cup, the footage is that bit kind of sharper or something? as compared to sort of like you know world cups of later years now maybe it's the te- i presume it's technology or whatever but why was it so uh, not grainy but you know what i mean it was really sharp like and uh it just seemed to kind of i don't know it had a particular quality that i don't think i'd ever seen in any other i don't think i've ever seen in any other world cup footage i, I think because we did consume it on vhs tapes uh, distributed by ktel <laughs> <laughs> most of the footage we actually see on those is from the official fifa films and that was actually shot on film as opposed to for tv so i think that's mm-hmm. why it looks different because we've become so used since to tv coverage that actually what we're seeing there is film quality footage interesting Game one, day one is uh, Argentina versus Belgium and the opening ceremony. But before we get into that game and, you know, focus in uh, carefully on it, we just need to set the scene, obviously, Mick. This is a World Cup in Spain. You know, the first piece of information that I want to uh, tell people about and just absolutely blew my mind was this World Cup was awarded to Spain in 1966. That's madness. Franco was in power, Rob. Well, now, Wow. You know, Spain's changed a lot in the years since being awarded this World Cup. And I think there was a deal done at the time that I think Germany was to get 74. And in exchange, they voted for Spain to get 82. Yeah, there seems to be, there was a lot of ins and outs, as if literally ins and outs, you know, guys who were, or the countries who were, who were bidding for a particular World Cup stepped out, as Kieran said, they're like in preference for another crowd who would vote for them for the next World Cup, whatever. But it is amazing to think that in that that it was done sixteen years before it was it was to be held, and even more so that you know you had General Franco in charge. It's just like the last remaining fascist bastion gets the World Cup. And even with sixteen years preparation time, they were still. <laughs> Putting the final lick of paint and doing the snagging list on the stadiums like the day before they were opened for visiting fans. According according to the Financial Times the day before, the, the doors that were newly made for the camp now, for you know, ahead of the opening ceremony, were had all been put on the wrong way. That's where we were at. 
lads, get the screwdrivers out. We got we got to swap the doors around. Like it was uh, it was one of those uh, again, again according to the Times, um, they apparently sold tickets on the basis of one hundred and twenty thousand capacity, but the fire authorities had mandated one hundred and two thousand, so there was a problem there. Uh, four and a half thousand participants in the dress rehearsal for the opening ceremony just destroyed the pitch <laughs> before it, so they had to cancel any more dress rehearsals. And this is this is these stories are common to all of the grounds. Bilbao, apparently, where England would play France in their first game, uh, was was more or less unfinished because it was a strike. The construction workers went on strike. Um, you know, so it, it was, it was, it was, um, yeah, it wasn't, it, it wasn't good. There was problems with ticket sales. Normally around, around that time, there were about 4 million people uh, in Spain during the summertime. Uh, they thought a million people would come for the football, but apparently it was scaled down to a quarter of a million because it was such a screw up with the ticket sales policy. Uh, it, it, it was just, it, they sold them as packages. I'm going to go into the details. They sold them as packages. Um that included tickets, airfare, hotels, um, but it just didn't take. It just didn't take, and it was just a disaster. Uh, it was overpriced at a time of a recession. Uh, there was loads of cancellations, as we'll probably discuss about Argentina and the Falklands War, of course, was on at the time. Uh, there was 5,000 Argentine bookings alone, and half of those were cancelled in the run-up um, to the World Cup because of this. Just just a mess from, from top to bottom. Problems with the mascot and imitations of the mascot lost him a fortune um incredible stuff incredible but probably not unfamiliar either to other world cups to be fair but um you know again it was all fairly all right on the night once they got to to barcelona for the autumn ceremony i'm I'm intrigued by the imitations of the mascot giving it given that it was an orange um (laughs) like were they just in fruit and veg stores or (laughs) yeah they were sticking little sombreros on the top of oranges and selling them off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. apparently there was a lot of them. They had to actually set up a special legal department, the organisers of the World Cup, to combat. They reckon there was between, again, according to the Financial Times, the day before the tournament began, there was between 80 and 90 very serious fraud cases brought. Um, people imitate, we just creating imitation. Naranjitos. Naranjito was the name of the mascot. Uh, so, um, so, yeah, yeah, that was the story. And game one in the World Cup in these days was the ho- the winners rather than the host nation, Kieran. So uh, in this case, Argentina coming in as reigning champions against Belgium, coming in as a side that had only won one game in the World Cup uh, before this. You'd wonder how much pressure there was on FIFA in advance of the tournament about Argentina's participation. Um, because, you know, we've seen now Russia have effectively been expelled from all international football tournaments. But at the time, Argentina had launched an invasion of a a British territory in the South Atlantic. It would appear the sun has set on yet another corner of the British Empire. This one far down in the South Atlantic. Argentina today invaded and seized the Falkland Islands, which have been under British rule for nearly 150 years. Britain promptly broke diplomatic relations with Argentina, sent several of Her Majesty's warships steaming south, and appealed to the United Nations. It all seems like something out of the 18th century, but the British, and for that matter, the Americans, are not amused. Prime Minister! Prime Minister! 
Mr. Speaker, sir, the House meets this Saturday to respond to a situation of great gravity. We are here because for the first time for many years, British sovereign territory has been invaded by a foreign power. After several days of rising tension in our relations with Argentina, that country's armed forces attacked the Falkland Islands yesterday and established military control of the islands. It was the focus of the world's media, of all governments. This weekend, Pope John Paul is in Buenos Aires trying to bring about a peace. This is the dominant story in global news at the time. To such a degree that the UK government tried to stop Scotland, England and Northern Ireland from attending the World Cup. Uh, So that's the backdrop against it. And suddenly we've got Argentina playing Belgium in the opening match of the World Cup. And there's a TV blackout in the UK because it features Argentina. And just actually to rewind ever so slightly, just in terms of the chaos, Kieran has mentioned there that there was an attempt, or there was certainly a, a, a fear that the British teams wouldn't play Argentina if it came to it. Um, when they were drawing the groups for the World Cup, there was a malfunction with the machine. A ball got stuck, so they had to go back and do it again. Got stuck, and as the around the same time as the ball got stuck, who got put in Argentina's group? Scotland. Scotland were actually in Argentina's group before they had to redo the draw because of this malfunctioning machine. And it also, FIFA had some crazy formula to try and avoid having two South American teams in the one group. Some, it was a competition. And, you know, again, I suppose it's probably no harm to just lay out the format now as well. It was a crazy kind of a setup of a format, you know? Yeah, it's a crazy format. All right, second phase of groups, meaning two more games. Every team was going to got through group phase one, had two further games, five games for everyone who didn't. A lot of teams didn't make the semifinals and still had five games in the World Cup. Mad. Okay, but that that wasn't uncommon at the time because the previous two World Cups had had two group stages. This this was a format they were wedded to, but the difference here is the number of participants. There's 24 countries at this World Cup for the first time. Gotcha, yeah. And this opening game, lads, there's so much to talk about uh, in terms of what fed into it. So like, that's why the game is probably falling towards the back of this conversation. We had an opening ceremony. Billy Joe, you watched that carefully, I'm sure. I mean, you love your opening ceremonies. <laughs> Loves a good I, dance, that lad. I, I'm absolutely good at it. I spent the last two hours looking looking for it and, and couldn't and couldn't get it. So, but But at the same time, when I think of World Cup opening ceremonies, maybe it's just as well I didn't see it because nothing beats Italia 90. So you know, uh, you can go back. <laughs> you can go back to true. you can go back to the podcast, uh, and then you can hear me fawn fawn over that uh, opening ceremony. Uh, so maybe it's just as well I haven't uh, I haven't upset myself. You just gave up on them once you heard they'd cut up the pitch. You're like the angry groundsman. <laughs> I think Billy, you probably would have been a bit traumatized by by the end of it, where a small boy walks out with a, with a football and unscrews the top from whence a dove flies out. I think you would have been worried for the dove. I'll be honest. I think you're probably as well off you, you didn't see it. Yeah, Thanks. I think so too. I also know that there was about like 600 uh, school kids in white tracksuits uh, to form a large dove on the pitch. Uh, I think based on a Picasso painting. Someone tell me if I'm wrong yeah. there. I think that's what they said. So 
that's the concept. But then like during the game, I hadn't watched the opening ceremony when I watched the game. I was like, why are there like hundreds and hundreds of fans in white tracksuits in the crowd? But yeah, they kind of shoved them all into the crowd. One thing I did notice though, the BBC who had the uh, coverage of the game uh, just simply on the news decided not to cover the game live uh, just because Argentina were involved. There's more on that, I guess. But in their news coverage, they kind of highlighted the fact that a large proportion of Argentina fans hadn't travelled. And they showed the empty block of seats in the stadium uh, saying that of uh, upwards of 10,000 Argentinian fans hadn't travelled, which I think in terms of accuracy, I don't think in the best of days there wasn't going, there was going to be 10,000 Argentinian fans travelling. Those are the guys the fire ops are kicked out. That's what I was thinking. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. There's 18,000 empty seats. Argentinian fans uh, were also had flags <laughs> confiscated from them, uh, according to the BBC News. Uh, for So they weren't really buying into the whole peace theme that was going on. I mean, it gets us to the Falklands War and the depth of like feeling that was in Argentina as they arrived and then the shock of what they saw when they landed. Because Mick, this is well covered in Jonathan Wilson's book. The Argentinian team arrived fired up as one nation, but then I'm sure it had to feed into their preparation for the game when they started to read the papers locally. Big time, big time. Like, I mean, as you say, like they were fired up. I mean, they were, it was, it was the Falklands War on one level was working exactly as the military hunter that was in charge of Argentina at the time wanted. They, they were at a stage where they had allowed some, uh, I suppose, concessions to democracy, if you like, um, whatever, however, however mild they were, but it, it was enough to stir up some talk about, you know, greater freedom of speech. There was a demonstration in Buenos Aires. So, you know, the, the entire Falklands conflict was a response to that, really, from the Argentinian side. It started in early April. By the time we got to the World Cup, though, that the country was galvanized, you know, into action together, as you as you would, you wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I mean, Cesar Manotti, the, the uh, Argentinian manager, World Cup winner in 78, well known as a as kind of a leftist, um, was entirely was entirely in tune with this. Like, I mean, he he was quoted at the time saying, "Each man has a part in the struggle. We feel immense pain for our brothers in the battle fleet, but we have been assigned a sports mission, and we will try to fulfil it with dignity." You know, that was it. And again, Las Malvinas San Argentinas, like the team, paraded that banner before they left for Spain. They landed in Spain, you know, no more than the rest of the country, assuming that the, the war was going quite well. Keep in mind as well, and I think this is extraordinary, like when you think about it, as well as you, you had the news bulletins, obviously, on Argentinian TV, but in between the news bulletins, you had an awful lot of reruns of matches from the 78 World Cup. So they were constantly mixing football and war together into this very potent kind of mix to the point that the players actually thought that, it was so necessary. I think Maradona put it this way, Diego Maradona, that that victory was so necessary for the country that it became almost inevitable that they would win. They felt compelled, so compelled to win that they couldn't believe that they would not win the World Cup again. It was so necessary. But as you said, they land in Spain, they see European media and they realize, Jesus, like we're getting pummeled. Good evening. The Defence Secretary, John Knott, tonight gave details of the British casualties during last week's Argentine air attacks on landing ships in the Falklands. 59 men died, 74 were injured. He said that the troops were now consolidating their positions after last Friday's surprise attack on Port Stanley and now hold Mount Longdon, Two Sisters and Mount Harriet, the high ground dominating the capital. 400 prisoners had been taken. 
But earlier in the week, during the attacks on landing ships in Bluff Cove and Fitzroy, Mr Knott disclosed that 43 soldiers of the Welsh Guards and supporting units were killed or are missing, presumed dead, and 46 were wounded. None of which is likely to affect the timing of the final British assault. Tonight, the commandos and paratroops are digging into what were until recently Argentine foxholes. Common sense says they can expect to receive an Argentine airstrike soon and probably an Argentine counterattack. The British attack on the high ground around Port Stanley was launched just after midnight on Friday. It was watched by Jeremy Hands, who sent this report on its successful outcome. It was a classic commando assault. As the big guns pounded the Argentine positions, something they'd become used to over the last few nights, Royal Marines and paratroopers silently moved in. Then at half past midnight, the so-called starting line was crossed simultaneously in three places as the British troops attacked the three key positions held by the enemy around Port Stanley. And the reality really dawns, okay, day one is World Cup is Belgium. The following morning, Argentina are surrendering at Port Stanley and the whole thing is, is, is winding down. Uh, you can only imagine the impact on the Argentinian squad, um, just just in their minds, going from one thing to another. And where are we? And what I mean, you know, I mean, they had leaflets in Argentina at the time of of a cartoon Maradona accepting the surrender of a British lion. You know, so I mean, that was how embedded into the psyche the Falklands conflict had become as a as a way to regain whatever lost glories they felt they had. In the same way that the seventy eight World Cup kind of energized the nation 82 the 82 world cup stroke the Falklands conflict was going to do the same thing in the eyes of the hunter but of course doesn't work doesn't happen as word of the argentine defeat leaked out in Buenos Aires, thousands of demonstrators began to gather outside the presidential palace president galtieri was scheduled to make a speech trying to explain the Falkland developments but the demonstrator as many as five thousand of them began screaming, traitor, traitor, and this is the end of the military dictatorship. Police moved in with clubs and tear gas. They dispersed the crowd. Some television crew members were knocked to the ground. Earlier in the day, when the crowd was smaller, the question was the same. Will the junta last? And if so, for how long? Funny thing, I can bring you in on this, Colin, that like the 86 World Cup always seemed like more to do with the Falklands, that win from Argentina over England, Maradona sticking it to the English, all this kind of stuff. But I, I don't think until I've started this process of going back into 82, they realized how on top of the 82 World Cup, the Falkland War conflict was and how raw it was uh, as it started. Same, Rob. And I think Mick did a brilliant job there of uh, of kind of summarizing uh just to, to, I suppose, to lead in the context of exactly what was happening and, you know, us, our understanding of, you know, who Argentinians are, how proud they are as a people, even going through what they were going through at the time. Uh, and then coupling that up with how that incredibly insane they are about football. Uh, I, in my research of this, although I probably would have been aware of both time timelines, uh, as parallels, I was I was completely unaware until I actually fixated on the opening game of this tournament that the two things were running in parallel. As Mick put it there, just heightens the whole sense of what this would have meant, not just 
for Argentina for Argentina World Cup, but for Argentinians uh, at a World Cup in Europe in Spain, um, as the Malvinas conflict was going on, just as you said it there, Rob, I've always thought of it far more about eighty six Mexico Maradona England, um, but to think that it was actually happening. And nobody had a clue how it was going to play out, how, Argent- how far Argentina were going to go, how far England were going to go. Um, so this was like, and being one of the favourites for the tournament with arguably the best player in the world at the time, uh, all eyes were on them and the whole, the whole, even the whole Barcelona connection with Maradona. It, um, everything was, maybe it was, maybe it was too much for them as we're going to get to in the opening game. Um, and obviously we saw, it, uh, you know, that affect them again a few years later as, as defending champions in, in, in Italy. So yeah, the entire backdrop, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, and listen, every single tournament we've covered so far, anyone you, you pick, unfortunately we always have, you know, we did Euro 92, we had the breakup of Yugoslavia, um, and when we did Italian IT, we were looking at the you know the fall of the Soviet, the Soviet Union and East and West, and here we are going back eight years before that. And yeah, we're talking about the biggest global story of that year was was that conflict, and right in the middle of that storm, we had a World Cup just about to kick off. So, and uh, gives incredible, uh, just gives incredible depth to the whole thing, and it once again proves that there's it's it's, it's impossible to separate. Uh, sport and geopolitics when it's happening on a scale like this, and it means so much to so many people. Just, just when you mention '86, there, Rob, like, and Maradona is a very good prism through which to see this. So you're dead right. I mean, coming into the English game, he had no problem in in, in ratcheting it up for the boys in the dressing room, like you know that we're we're going to take the English down after after the the catastrophe of the Malvinas and all this. But in 1982, he's he is the poster boy for the hunter, whether he likes it or not. They they treat him as a hero. They they market him as the best that Argentina has to offer, even though he's going through, as we'll probably discuss later on, a kind of living hell at the time, trying to deal with all this pressure. But he's he is asked questions at the time about the hunt and about the political situation, and he stepped right away from it. Like he says, I'm just just trying to make the Argentinian football team the best team they can be. Type of type of stuff. It's interesting to me. That he does that in 1982, yet he is—he has no problem, uh, I suppose, weaponizing, for want of a better expression, weaponizing history four years later for the benefit of the Argentinian team. I was uh, just on that, though, Mickey. I, I guess his age—you know, where he was after everything that, that had happened in, in, in '78 and where he was as as, as a footballer in, in 1982—it was probably a lot harder for him. And we often see that with global sports stars. Until they actually truly become themselves, can they, you know, step out of the shadow? I mean, probably a completely unfair example, but like look at McElroy now, how he seems far more comfortable in identifying with the cause, no matter what that is, compared to the uncertainty that he may have experienced like four four or eight years ago. So I remember reading El Diago, one of the early biographies of Maradona and him speaking about that and how you know, how crazy it was to be in Argentina at that time to be playing football and be him. And I think he, he does address the fear he had, or at least he does he does acknowledge that his perspective on it changed or his courage in speaking out about certain things changed over those years. So, like, what age was he in 82? Was he 
was he 22? 21. Oh, he was 21, was he? 21. Yeah, yeah. So still super young, obviously, all eyes on him. And you're right, the post boy of the Hunter. Uh, but yeah, I think, I th- but also, I think the, just to talk about 86 for a sec, even the reaction, I, I, like so much of how we viewed that war and probably how they viewed how others viewed them came out of what happened, obviously, in the aftermath of that war and the reporting on it and how Thatcher's Britain kind of shaped the narrative on it. So I think the bitterness was was obviously amped up far more four years later than it probably even was in, in 1982. I was just, just I, I think specifically as well, I, I think just maybe, you know, we will probably delve into it in detail in terms of the, the mindset and even just the performance of Argentina. But I think it maybe is a factor as well that you, they just land in Spain and it's like this shock of information, whereas even the 78 World Cup was at home. Most of the players were playing at home. You know, after the 82 World Cup on the way to, to 86, more and more players are playing in, in Europe. And like the political situation in Argentina, you know, all throughout that period was 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 dire in, in many ways and with atro- atrocities. And I think sometimes it takes that, you nearly need to get away from it to, to fully understand t- what's going on. And I, I think in some respects, the 82 is just thrown on the team all in a shot too quickly and, and they're not ready for it. The context for that, and you've you've laid it out brilliantly, Billy, because 78 was at home. The Hunter are trying to control a narrative constantly for the population because there is rampant inflation, massive recession. The country's hugely in debt. A major contributory factor to that was hosting the World Cup in 78 because they spent, by some estimates, $700 million on infrastructure. What you've got then is they need to keep their players in Argentina, which was what they had done for 78 as well. So a number of the, all of their pre-World Cup friendlies, which were all against European opponents, were played in Argentina. And in fact, they drew forward. So they, they played Czechoslovakia twice, either side of Christmas. Both were draws. They played West Germany and drew with them. And they played the Soviet Union and drew with them. And they only actually get the two wins that they had in the lead in against Bulgaria and Romania in May while they're in a 10-week training camp preparing for the World Cup. Ozzy Ardiles had actually left Spurs once the Falklands War started and had returned to Argentina and was there for this 10-week training camp and was actually talking up before the tournament about how prepared they would be by comparison to everybody else because of the camp they were doing. But they weren't going well. Those draws... They didn't perform well in, and the two victories were scrap were scrappy enough. So they're arriving in Spain. That's all been done because the Hunter needs the public to be distracted by football in Argentina and needs its marquee players to be in Argentina. So they're so sheltered from what's happening outside that when they do eventually arrive in Spain, they're not prepared for the enormity of what they're faced with. Game one of this long journey. Game one, Argentina nil, Belgium one. Oh, we're on to the football. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> this is uh, this is surely going to be a trend. Uh, but you're, uh, we, we, I'd say that'll probably be the latest that you'll hear uh, our introduction to our game. I, I want to go get the overview first of all because like you have the background folks uh the game kicks off in a weird atmosphere i'll start by saying that it just was a very kind of dead atmosphere something really odd about it um obviously a lot of neutrals in the crowd plenty of belgian fans there as well 
Billy Joe Padden, you watched 90 minutes of the opening game of this World Cup that we cover. What's your first take? I thought the start, I, I, I thought it was quite a, an up-tempo start. Um, we sat through a lot of the Italian 90 and you kind of see caginess. And I, I actually think that both teams tried to, to play on the, the front foot. Um, and I think particularly, I thought Argentina's best period in the game was probably that opening 15 minutes. And they kind of lost their way after that, whereas it just looked like Belgium had a, a clear, clear plan right the way out. You know, early on, they really did kick Maradona up in the air. Um, he went on a great slalom run uh, at, and got tacked down from behind very early on. And I think it was another uh, follow on a free kick. I think that ball dropped I think it was to Passarella it was quite difficult to see any left footed and it was a, a good shot by Piaf but uh, I, I enjoy I enjoyed the opening stages of the game but you know as often often when I get watching these games uh, Rob it's the real important stuff that I like to focus in on um, like I really wanted to, I really wanted to be in the room when they were deciding the Argentinian squad numbers when they do it by alphabetical order. And then... With Diego, one exception, Di- Billy. Di- with one exception. Diego got Diego 10, but everybody Di- else is alphabetical. Di- Diego put... And the bit that got me is that you have Mario Kempes, the hero of 78, would have been in line to wear number 10. Uh, uh, because alphabetically, alphabetically. Uh, but no... Diego, Diego, they don't get me wrong. Like this adds to the legend. This is, but I would have liked to have been, uh, been a fly on the wall for, for that conversation. Um, uh, and I think it's an interesting quirk of these tournaments when you look back on them, the whole idea of squad numbers and the way, the way teams use them. So in some respects, Aussie Adirley is when number one is, is iconic in its own right. And, and this is, they were the only team in the World Cup that did this. Like every other team had a goalkeeper wearing number one. I mean, the, seeing Fial wearing seven in yeah. goals, it, it, there's just something so disturbing about it. And then on top of that, our, yeah, and Ardiles' one was on like the blue stripe of the jersey, so you couldn't see the one. <laughs> You're like, when is that the Ardiles wear the jersey with no number at all? Is he, did he just forgot to take his training top off or something? And he's going around like doing things. Like, it was oh, actually, speaking of the important stuff, right? The Belgian kit, I have to say, and I'm sure we will discuss yeah. Admiral again. Admiral did the Belgian kit. <laughs> yeah. But here, lads, what I didn't realize all these years was, right? So the Belgian kit is all red, right? And you've got these two yellow stripes going down the side of the jersey, right and left. And they've got these little insignias on it. And I was kind of going, is that the Belgian crest or something? So I went off and I got, did, a little, did, did a little Jimmy Google and found that, no, no, it's the Admiral logo. Down the side. I mean, has ever has any football jersey ever had so many, so many logos on it? You know, <laughs> unbelievable. This is the World Cup of jerseys. Uh, I mean, we're going to be talking about jerseys a lot. There are some spectacularly, spectacularly good jerseys in this World Cup. How, how do we rate this Belgium jersey? I love it. Oh, I think it's, it's iconic. A, Anyone it's a, good? I mean, I mean, uh, all the admiral gear is ah, iconic. It gets a solid eight for me, anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, well, you mentioned headbands earlier. There's, there's somewhere behind uh, Juan Carlos, King Juan Carlos. There's a Belgium fan in the dignitary section wearing a Belgium sweatband. I mean, I, like I, Probably I just president I think, of the Belgian FA. <laughs> <laughs> but like that came into fashion for like like that is not cool now. I don't think it was cool before 1982. I'm not even sure it was cool in 1982. But people well, were it doing was the this. Era of, what were those things used to wear? What the, 
my Bobby, not Bobby, what do they call them? You know, the ankle warmer thingies. What do they call them? You know, for running and stuff. What do they call them? Leave him there, lads. Leave him on his own. Leave him. <laughs> yeah, Everybody's wearing sweatpants. Let's get physical. You know, we're all we're all out jogging and doing silly things and wearing ridiculous pieces of wool on our heads and our wrists and things like that. It's, it's a crazy time. It was definitely to the apex of, I think, uh, which says a lot of Puma Kings and Adidas World Cups, oh, yeah. I think. Um, Anyways, as I said, folks, uh, the game, uh, as we uh, continue uh, dissecting it in great detail. <laughs> a couple of things on the game. I thought Jean-Marie, Jean-Marie Faf had an incredible game. Yeah, no, they were very, they, they were very, um, how would you put it? Muscular is the way I would put it. Lucky. <laughs> yeah, lucky would be another way to put it. Do you think so? Because they, they, they wasted a good few chances. There was one, like, my God, there was one header. Who, who header, the header? Yeah. I know that uh, I think that was, I can't pronounce his name, Sternazinski. I think he missed the. Caesar He missed, yeah. which was a, a, real, a, real, a real sitter. Not even attempting that one. I'll check his squad number. I'll do it. Go on. Chernatinsky. Yeah. Chernatinsky. Okay. Solid. Yeah. Is that where we, we, we go. That's what I said as well. <laughs> Check it. <laughs> How? What? That, that's one of the weirdest misses I've yeah, ever seen. Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I, I, I think it was for Kucherin who was down the right wing, and he crossed it, and, and you know, Philol came out at the front post and missed it, and then I think it took Chernadinsky by surprise, and he just he just got too much of a glance on it. When really, if he'd made any contact, he was heading it into an into an open net. But I, I, I kind of disagree, lads. I, I felt that Belgium had, you know, were, were good value for the win. Like, I think Van der Berg had a chance in the first half as well where the ball dropped him and he's kind of trying to hook it back in and, and Bill O's in the, in, the, in, the, in the right place. Um, but, I, you know, I think, I think Belgium's plan was quite clear. I think they were going to go straight, trying to get the ball straight into the Argentinian centre halves and try and make something happen there because you had Kuhlmanns in down there being a presence, being in and around. And when you, if you remember back to that chance, that they, the really good chance, the header that was missed, they had about four or five players in and around the penalty area at that stage. Kuhlmanns actually gets the ball played across him and he plays it wide again for 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 I think the Van der Berg chance. Um, so I, I felt they were good value for their win. The the goal, Billy, the defending. Discuss, as they would say, and leaving certain history yeah, yeah, paper. T- 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 well, 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 well. I suppose you've, you've, you've. You I, I thought Argentina started the game well. Team on top. They, they, there was a team that were the most progressive. Obviously, with you know Maradona in your team, you're you know it's so obvious when you watch these games that everyone just like it's literally. I have the ball. Okay, where's Diego? And it's it's it's, it's passed to him, and it's taken a second. So they're passing into him, and he's he's always interesting to watch. I don't think he can go through even in games like he seemed to be obsessed in the first half with these sort of not outside of the boot football, not not the way you know Cancelo now is got you know for the the goal for Erling Haaland a couple of weeks back where he plays the ball off the outside of the boot and it's a strike and he's putting the ball spin. He's jabbing these balls off the outside of his boot like it's 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 a different technique altogether. It, it's 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 remarkable really how how he can do it. But I, again, Maradona makes makes me lo- lose my train of thought. But I suppose Belgium are in the game. The goal comes. Verkudrin again plays a long ball. It's not really a cross because it's come from halfway back the field. And the two, I don't know where the Argentinian centre halves are. And like that's a huge error in in itself. No pressure on the ball in the first place is an error. But then I think it, it is all made worse by Philol's indecision. 
the, the control by Vandenberg is, is horrific. The ball goes about three foot above his head, <laughs> straight up, straight up. The keeper, the keeper is coming out. The keeper is coming out, and if he keeps going, he probably just catches the ball on its way down and and and, and rolls it out to the to the fullback. No, he hesitates, and then, in all fairness to Vandenberg, he realizes the goalkeeper hesitates, and he doesn't hit it first time. He controls it, and it's a good second touch to play it up, to tee it up for a volley into the far corner. But it's absolutely horrific play by the centre halves, and even worse by the goalkeeper. Terrible goal to concede. The parallels with the Cameroon game in 1990 are startling. True. Mm. Very, very true. And it, you know, up to this point, I mean, I think the last, well, the last time. That uh, a defending champion lost the opening game of the World Cup. You have to go back to 1950 when Italy lost. And keep in mind that that was like, whatever, 12 years with the war in between. So, I mean, it almost wasn't, didn't really count almost, you know, kind of a, usually it's a gimme. But like, obviously, look, Belgium had got to the European Championship final in 1980, but they didn't really have a pedigree really as a as a championship team. They only won two matches, I think, in in in, in major tournament history before the 1980 European Championships, um, but you're right. The, the the parallels are amazing. Even just in the performance, I like Billy Joe. I thought I thought Argentina looked the business for the first 15, 20 minutes or so, and then they just kind of lost their way a bit. Maradona kind of got he just he kept getting kicked, constantly kicked, and no yellow cards, of course, and sometimes no free kick. And the Belgians in that way, just being very organised, looking and having a distinct plan you know, just kind of ground their way into the game um, in the same way as the Cameroonians almost did, you know? I mean, the Cameroons, oh, sorry, Cameroonians also kicked a lot of Argentinians up in the air in 1990 and got away with it. Um, and I kind of come out of the game thinking there's more in that Argentinian team. There is more in them, you know, that kind of way. But then knowing the backdrop to the whole thing and the situation and, uh, and just the difficulties Maradona was having himself and just trying to just trying to figure himself out. You know, what what who am I? What am I doing? You know, the pressure that was on him and so on and so forth. You kind of knew, oh God, this is bad. Also worth pointing out that there was a level of the eleven, nine of them played in seventy-eight. The only two new players were Maradona and Ramon Diaz up front, both of whom starred in the seventy-nine under twenty World Cup that Argentina won. So effectively the team was exactly the same. There had been no evolution, no progression whatsoever since 78. And one of the things, you know, we, we mentioned the atmosphere. This is the Messiah's first game in his new hometown. You would have thought that the Barcelona fans would have packed that stadium out to welcome their new hero. And the club had pursued him for three years to get this deal across the line. With apparently... Bizarrely, in the midst of the Falklands War, Manchester United trying to get in on the act and pip Barcelona to his services. Could you imagine if that had happened? Mental. Yeah, that's, that's a hard one to figure. Um, I'm not sure where everything would have followed in terms of Alex Ferguson if they'd gone down that road, but it's a whole other story. Colin, like, you know, we, we, we've drawn the parallels to 1990, but this Argentinian team, uh, the character of it, is there anything that emerged from this game that you felt you got getting to know it? Or were you two just drawn to Maradona and nothing else? I think it's, it's hard not to be. Um, like, we haven't mentioned the, the free kick yet. And the, yeah, the, the after they go 1 0 down, they get this glorious yeah. free kick, yeah. 
and it's um you know like it's it's 20 26 27 yards out down off the underside and it's like like billy was even saying about his technique for the outside of the the boot kind of um jab that he was practicing like this free kick he seems to flick um and it's all 25 26 yards out off the underside of the bar you know at a glance and nearly you could even have thought that it actually crossed the line i don't think it did he tried to claim that it did um, he was straight away yeah, yeah, there was a puff. you yeah, could see the puff of paint off the goal line it it. yeah and like even i'm not sure who botched the chance in the follow-up but you know one of those ones which ricochets off the player off the keeper and off the player again and goes wide so yeah it just had that sense of a game that was nothing was once they the once they went to goal down nothing was going to go right for them and, and then they became quite desperate so to get a sense of the team it, it's hard i mean we've seen in world cups subsequently that teams can have a game like that in, in the opening uh the, the opening match of the tournament they come back strong and build happened obviously italy in 1980 and 1994 with us so hard to kind of judge how good they were um, I think too, like we're so used to now um, between the summer tournaments, well, up to this point, obviously before the Nations League, etc., was happening. That these teams nowadays, these international teams are the top international teams are playing each other all the time, and that wasn't happening then. You know, it was like so. It must be a very you know the, the novelty factor of playing these teams that you don't have too much homework done on and don't know too much about, especially Belgium being a, a, um, pretty much a sort of a an unknown to a team like Argentina. Um, you could see they were affected. And just when it wasn't happening for Maradona, especially after the opening period of the game, you could see the team struggled. And obviously that's something that uh, was mirrored in 1990. But um, you'd always feel sorry for Maradona because he always, it's not that he disappears from games or he doesn't want the ball. He always wants the ball. He's always trying to do something. And it's either not coming off for him um, or he's getting kicked or both. Uh, but really, again, he's the focal point, and when it's not happening for him, there's not an awful lot of creativity coming from elsewhere on that team. There was a lot of chaos in, in this, as you know, as pedestrian as it was at times. Then it was just like chaotic defending, as you've already pointed out, and a lot of just kind of bizarre stuff could have led to more goals for both teams. But um, it, it was it was tough, like for Maradona as well. I mean, and you're dead right; like he he shows the whole time. He's not like he disappears into the game or, you know disappears out of the game around he's carrying a hamstring injury as well by the way into the match which you know it's that's a hell of a thing and you know that's, that's a hell of a thing to have that in the back of your mind while you're also essentially at 21 years of age expected to carry this world cup winning team you know and to bring him to another level and he's also kind of having a bit of hassle with Manotti I mean he came off the back in, in the previous year he had looked for a bit of a break in the autumn of 81 just just to get his head straight and Manotti actually suspended him from uh, the team for apparently not trying hard enough in training or something like that I mean it's cr- you know it, like a little bit of I mean for a guy who at the time was being painted in the media as the guy who was actually making the most from this world cup never mind Spain that Maradona was the one who was making the most because he had he already had you know various commercial deals with big big blue chip companies and, and so on and so forth um, and as as Kieran mentioned he had just made the jump to Barcelona uh, for four million quid having you know his transfer fee to Boca Juniors from Argentinos nearly bankrupted Boca Juniors and you know the Hunt actually paid part of his wages to keep him in Argentina at the time so all of this is all of this has gone on and you know what you were willing I mean <laughs> 
even though your natural inclination maybe is for Belgium to win as the underdog, I don't know. I was willing Maradona, knowing that it wasn't going to happen, but I was willing Maradona to do something. And I was willing that free kick to go in. Just that piece of genius. Because you can only imagine. Can you imagine what Maradona would have been like in that tournament if that goal had gone in? He might have just opened up. You know what I mean? Rather than being this almost, he was almost an, he was almost a prisoner of himself. It seemed to me in that tournament. You're right, Mick. Because like best player in the world, uh, you know, all eyes on this game. One nil down in his new home. That goal would have been possibly the goal of the tournament. Scored in the first day by the greatest player. It's a sliding doors moment for that uh, tournament completely. I think you do, though. I think you can appreciate. Look, like as I said, we you always appreciate Maradona, but I think you can appreciate. You know the other star players. Obviously, no, nobody approaches the level of Maradona in 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 the you know for the full decade um, in the eighties. And you know, you can, I'd include Platini and Van Basten in that regard again, as great as they were. But like, I think Ardiles has a fine game, uh, and I, I found that very interesting. In that, I don't really remember him playing for Spurs, yeah. and I was curious as to what type of player he was. Like, obviously, you know, a veteran of seventy eight. Um, and I was just really impressed, particularly his first 60, 70 minutes. All right, he tailed off for the last 20 minutes. And then Kimpes, like Kimpes, as Colin pointed out there, the, the rebound after the goal was was Kimpes' miss. He probably should have taken it first time, tries to take it around the defender, gets a shot away with his weaker right foot, and and Piaf is in the right place and makes the save. It's just that sharpness maybe that was missing that in an, another time that, he'll, uh, that he should have taken full time. But I think you see the qualities. Uh, in particular, those two players as well at times. And that my image of Kempes from 78 is him like, Jesus, he would have made a great 110-meter hurdler, wouldn't he? <laughs> you know, striding onto the ball, hurdling, hurdling tackles, and then poking it past the keeper. And he, 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 never, he never really got that space to put stride those long legs into. Of course, he's, they're made look longer with the socks rolled down and the hair flowing. Um so it's very, very envious. But I, I think you do still do see some of some of that. What quality. did you like about Ardiles? I, I, I tell you what I liked about Ardiles. I wasn't sure what to expect in terms of what type of player he was. Like obviously not the biggest bloke in the world. As a manager, played this you know attack in football as much as I remember for for Tottenham. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know if I, I think he was a playmaker. I don't think he was. Like uh, uh, you know, Maradona was further up the field. I, I was. I actually think he was in in modern parlance. You'd probably say he was an eight, not a not a defensive midfielder, not a ten, and he was an eight and and, and, a, and a sort of a box to box player, tidy, put his put his foot in, and so it was. You know, I, I I'm struggling to find an absolute comparison that you could you could make, but definitely he was a box to box player. But he was so neat and tidy on the ball, and his passing was so sharp. Uh, yeah, quality player. Yeah. Lads, I'm curious just in terms of, uh, you know, as we finish this, and we, we, each day we're going to pick a team of the day if we can, but obviously when there's just two teams, I don't think there's a need to do that. But I want to go for player of the day nominations here if people are alert to it. We also... Know, Rob, come on. Yeah. Come on, come on, come on. Surely do you want to go with, Do you want to just pick one or the other all the way down? You can do that. I'm all for it. Well, the goalkeeper is Jean-Marie Faf, so there's one. All right, okay. Passarella or De Schreiber? God. You see, this is now... This is- this is now like trying to do player ratings on a rugby team and you don't know what the yeah. tight had propped did for the day. Yeah. Uh, How much did the, very, very efficient with his work in the tight and <laughs> visible in the loose. The Shriver, I couldn't tell you. I, I couldn't Great tell hair. you. That's <laughs> a relic because I know his name. Uh, uh, 
Eric Garrett's yeah, no, no. I I was impressed with Eric Gerrits so when I was I, I I suppose I remember him as as a manager. You know, I think he was manager of Anderlecht or one of them, and maybe the Belgian national team as well. Um, I remember maybe being uh, managing a team at Anfield. Must be an Anderlecht against against Liverpool at some stage. But I thought he played really well, really solid. You know, he reminded me of Stephen Carr. They used to play for Ireland. <laughs> Short steps, but quick and kind of stocky and barging into people and not getting knocked over and kept up and going again. Um, and I, I thought he was really good and kind of aggressive and set the tone. And you can see who, prob- you know, you can see who's a, a leader in, in that in that outfit. And, and let's face it, we're not putting the two Argentinian centre backs at centre back after the concession of that goal. So two Belgian centre backs done and into midfield. Back. So yeah, we're into midfield now. Ardila, does it get in? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, he's there. Gallego? No. No. Oh, Verkotren, I think, has to be in there, doesn't he? Verkotren. Yeah, Verkotren, yeah. Verkotren. I'll pronounce it right. He, he played well. Yeah, he played I, well. I, I, would also, I would also make a, yeah. a case for, um, uh, I think it's pronounced Koik. Koik? Ludo Koik. And uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it was, um, yeah. who was the guy beside him? Mark Backer, um, who basically spent the day kicking Maradona. But to be fair, they did it very efficiently, and I don't think either of them got booked. So, I mean, you know, Kempes is in there. Would Check you put Maradona in there, Kempes has to be in there. I would. Yeah, I would. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah you would yeah, for the, would the flick. I mean, that, that's a thunderous flick. Kuhlmans, does he make it before we get Vandenberg, Vandenberg has to make in, it for yeah, the goal, yeah. even though Vandenberg and Kempes are your boys. Yeah. Uh, yeah, plenty of chance. Up there. Yeah. yeah probably did, yeah, yeah. We've probably picked twelve there, but hey. I, I, can, that's can the I eleven just, plus one sub. Yeah, and I, 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 I have to say, you know, with all these broadcasts, you get some manager time. Didn't get any um time on 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 you know I can't even pronounce his name Guy Thies or whatever the Belgian G- manager Thies but like uh, Luis Cesar they were probably Menotti. afraid to show Manotti smoking there was probably a smoking ban on television at the time or something. in a Mac in a Mac smoking a cigarette non-stop there was a there was a shot down the bench at one stage and there was a line <laughs> of cigarettes and kind of pale-looking, pale well-dressed Argentinian men, about four of them. I was thinking, well, what, 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 that, one of them has to be the doctor. The other one's probably running the logistics. They're all in the same sort of Max. Uh, 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 a Mac in but, June in, in, in Barcelona. Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But lads, that's, they're all... They're all- they're all sitting so low down as well. Like, how do you how do you manage a football team from uh, when your eyes are at boot level? Can anyone explain that? Like, that's bizarre. That, that's that's one of the amazing things about Camp Nou is those dugouts that are are below ground level. So you just it's like eyes peek out over the top of them. That's Mental. It. And you 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 would imagine that they, they can't really see the other side of the field. Did anyone else notice that full time whistle on the coverage we were watching? They played the Spanish national anthem a second time. Did that actually ha- happen? Did, did just on the full time whistle? Did they play the anthem again? It was mental. I saw that. I saw that. I can only assume. I can only assume that Juan Carlos missed it first time around because forgot to mention <laughs> that his limo driver couldn't find a parking space outside before <laughs> they had to delay the opening ceremony by 20 minutes for Juan Carlos to find a parking space outside so maybe he missed the tune so they said I will play at the end for me he'd be delighted uh, I'd, I'd say 
that's revenge because I'd say King Juan Carlos not getting a parking spot was was the Catalans ah, letting yeah. him know we don't want a monarch. It was something that would say his response truck. was well, well, I'm going to give you the anthem twice in that case. <laughs> Some lad with a burger truck just parked it in the parking space and said, nah, I've been here since 12 o'clock today. You can go off now and find somewhere else. <laughs> well, I'm glad that this episode didn't pass without me, you know, without me getting the chance to, you know, big up Minotti's Mac and his, and his cigarettes. But I, I, if I can add one further thing that makes me admire the man even more is that he made his name, I think, managing Hurricane. Uh, and they had a great team Hurricane, yeah. and, and, and won, won a title, small enough club, not one of the five grandes in, in Argentinian football. But it has to be said, it's the greatest club crest of all time, Hurricane, because it's like a, a, a hot air balloon, a hot, white shirt, red hot air balloon with red, red like pipe and a red trim, red cuffs on the jersey. It, it's, it's simply I'm just looking it, it up here. unrivaled, unrivaled. Can we have a spin-off, a spin-off podcast of what they wore with uh, Billy Joe? Yeah, no, we're, de- we're definitely doing a head-to-toe episode where we compare all the kits. That's that's what, one of we our should... bonus episodes on Buy Me A Coffee over the course of this tournament will be the kit show. We, yeah, we should have a spin-off podcast discussing the football in the 1982 World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, see, I see Michael Foley readying something there, which always disturbs me because oh, it usually oh, means... Sorry. I've like, heard about this. He, he gave me a, a heads up. A is... being invented at this stage or is... I don't know. You know, I don't know. He's, he's reaching for the 1982 the cards. I can see it. <laughs> Mick, before you speak, I just want to check. Just want to check. Has anyone anything else to add? Because we are finishing on this because it's too glorious not to finish on. Mick's been putting up some extra work, more work than the rest of us who've just been bluffing our way through all of this. But anyways, nope. Okay, Mick, cool. the floor is yours. Cool. I, again, what's much more fun than the football really is the when you go back and look at some of the pop culture and realize what we were watching, and suddenly all oh, the memories come back, and you're like. Shit, I remember nothing about soccer, but I completely remember watching Tales of the Golden Monkey, you know, and and all the records that were in the charts at the time. I'll be honest with you. I mean, I have a sense I'm going to be lost here. I I doubt you will. So, like, as we have done in previous uh, series now, right? And I, you know, guess the number one, right? Now, there was 21 number ones in 1982. I do not propose to go through all 21, right? Um, but we can. I, what we might do is we might just pick some random numbers from one to twenty-one. I'll give you the name of the song and see can you get the artist right now. I would say right based on what's played on ye oldie classical kind of classic hit stations, right? I would say the, the, the one that used to sponsor QPR, <laughs> classic FM. Yeah, like nineteen eighty-two was a pretty vintage year for the old classic hit stations, right? And I would say myself. I probably wouldn't mind hearing 10 or 11 of these. And that's pretty good for me, let me tell you. But um, so, so I'm just going around the table, right? And you just pick a number between 1 and 21, right? And I just throw it out and whoever whoever calls it out first gets the point, right? So, uh, Colin, start there. Give me a number between 1 and 21. 15. 15, okay. This is, oh, God's sake. All right, this is open to everybody, like, right? The song is, ugh, come on, Eileen. Dexie's Midnight, Dexie's Runner, Midnight Runners. Runners. Oh, Lord. I have to get uh, have to get the old photo finish on that one. It's uh, all right. Go on, Billy Joe. Give me another one. Ten for Diego. Ten. Ah, oh, no, this is a tricky one. I did not know this one. A little piece. Eurythmics or Annie Lennox. That's a fair guess. Ooh. 
for no other reason than I think I've heard peace in one of their yeah. songs. It's someone called Nicole. I don't. Is that the Argentina? Is that the Argentina World Cup? Song? It is <laughs> a little piece. A little piece, Colin. What would that be in Spanish? Um, I was on, I was on mute there. Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> Momentum is key here. Ignore him more than twenty-one. Nicole Silver. Uh, no, I'm going to go with Ozzy Ardiles. One number one. All right. This is this is the oh god. This is the Christmas number one from the previous year, lipping over into January. Don't you want me? Human League. Ah, oh, goodbye, Billy Joe. That's Jeez, it. Look Billy at that. Look. Too, Saw the gap. That was a pure, actually, that was a pure Vanderborg moment. Paul was in the air for ages well. there before he finished it. Go on, Rob. Give me one more. Oh, um, I'm going to say numbers. Four. Four. Ah. The model. Craftwork. Very good. Very good. You, you, you'd all wanted one to get that one right. Here, I'll give you a couple of more before we, before we, Leave this off. Oh God. Um, let me see. Let me see. Uh, the lion sleeps tonight. <laughs> Do you know the name of the band? Great name for a band, lads. Jungle Boys, wasn't it? Jungle Boys. What kind of clubs are you going to? Tight fit. Oof. Tight fit. <laughs> Tight fit. Bum 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 bum. Past the Duchy was a hit. Past the Duchy, yeah. The oh, specials. Do you only mention the Dutch in this World Cup? Special Banton. Banton. That's great. I'd nearly give it the points, but it, it's wrong. Uh, musical youth. <laughs> musical youth. Anyway, look, there's loads of them. House of Fun by Madness came out this year. Fame by Irene Cara. Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, wow. lads. Do you really want to hurt me wow. by Culture Club? I don't want to dance Eddie Grant. The Jam had two number ones, Beat Surrender and The Line Seems Night. It was a serious year, like, it was a serious year. Wow. Like, the TV shows, just to give you a, a feel of that, right? The tr- three of the most popular TV shows in America in 1982 were MASH, Dallas, and Magnum P.I. That's serious stuff, like. <laughs> Cheers started in yeah. 1982. Knight Rider started in 1982. Hello, hello started in 1982. Well, maybe not. I'm not TJ Hooker. Uh, Hooker started in 1982. TJ Hooker started in 1982. Blackadder, The Young Ones, Police Squad. Remember Police Squad, the, the, yeah. the forerunner to Police Squad? Leslie to, Nielsen. That was, that was 1982. Remington Steel, Brookside. Are, uh, I'm just thinking there are 50 year old men listening to this going, that's finally someone's <laughs> realised. This is the glorious time. Bring him back alive. <laughs> See, these are all arty. Bring him back alive and Tales of the Golden Monkey, lads. That's what I'm going to have to watch. I'm not watching any more matches. I'm just watching Tales of the Golden Monkey, Bring him back alive, and the greatest American hero, and sue me if you don't like it. Kieran, what's up on day two? I don't know. You tell me, Rob. What is up on day two? <laughs> I just thought you might I have th- a I think what's up on day two? The young ones. <laughs> <laughs> it's Italy versus Poland and it's Brazil versus the USSR and that's day two. We'll be back for that. Buy me a coffee page. If you want to find us, Espana82, one day at a time on Buy Me A Coffee. If you want to support us and get some extra content, lots of loads of, lots of extra shows, as we talked about. We might even have a World Cup of jerseys in there in one of the episodes, but we'll have some fun in the background. That's for, for those of you who want to uh, help us out, keep us doing what we're doing. In the meantime, we've got a lot of games to watch. We've only just started. Let the journey commence.